Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to the Just Pod. Today, we're going to be speaking with our Discovery Task Force, and joining me is the chair of the Discovery Task Force, the Honorable Judge Martin Marcus of New York State Supreme Court, and also the reporter of the task force, Professor Jennifer Lauren of the University of Texas School of Law. So today, we're going to discuss their work in establishing standards for pretrial discovery. The general trend with pretrial discovery is expanding discovery obligations in criminal cases. This is beneficial to both parties and promotes the fair administration of the criminal justice system. However, discovery is generally narrower in comparison to discovery in civil cases. So first, let's provide a little background with discovery and the creation of this task force. What initiated the creation of this task force? Really two things. Uh, First of all, the, the standards committee periodically reviews uh, what standards have been updated and what not, and, and makes a determination as to whether there's a need to update them. And the, the standards, the third edition of these standards, the current ones, were adopted in 1996, and a, a lot of things have changed, and the trend in discovery has changed. And these standards in particular were fairly general and needed greater specification. And for all those reasons, a task force was created to develop a fourth edition. I imagine that since 1996, the type of evidence that is brought forth in the discovery stage has changed a bit. Well, I think there have been some changes in that regard. In particular, DNA testing was not such a pervasive phenomenon in 1996, and of course is. And more broadly, in the time since 1996, there's been a lot of conversation and soul-searching within the criminal justice system about the use of forensic evidence more broadly, best practices in that regard, and that's something that we're sort of incorporating into our discussions in the discovery standards. Electronic discovery really didn't exist in a, in a, in a meaningful way in 1996, and particularly in, in, in large federal cases, but really in all cases with the advent of police-worn body cameras and other uh, recording of police activity, that is a, a category of discovery that's significantly more pervasive and presents unique challenges that the task force is, is looking at. And, and I think also, you know, since 1996 and related to DNA technology, there's been such an increased awareness made sort of palpable for folks by, by exonerations of the the link between discovery and truth-seeking and, and the opposite of that, right? Consequences in terms of the risk of wrongful conviction in limited discovery. And so I think that has sort of changed the atmosphere around discovery conversations since 1986. And I think the last change that I would point to that is reflected in our conversations around updating the standards has been the increased understanding of the extent to which negotiated resolutions, guilty pleas, are so much more the the sort of common resolution of a criminal case as compared to trials. And that that then changes an understanding of what role discovery is supposed to play. The greater impact that it has in our criminal justice system really is on allowing parties to determine how to 
resolve a case before trial as opposed to use at trial. And so that's a, that's a reality that we are addressing in the discovery standards in the fourth edition. Thank you. I'm wondering if there are any prominent in the news cases that our listeners might be able to recognize and be somewhat familiar with, if there are any trials that can show how important discovery is in providing all sculptory evidence to reduce risk of discrimination and prosecutorial misconduct. The, the case that came up very often in, in discussions in the task force was the prosecution of Senator Stevens in Alaska, who was convicted and after trial and a huge uh, Brady violations were discovered afterwards to the point that the Justice Department agreed to the dismissal of the case. That's sort of the iconic example these days. But, but it happens all the time, and, and Brady issues are a major focus of, of what we did, and I think there's a new sensitivity to it in the courts as well. Another, another case that came up frequently in our conversations in the task force because it had an impact on discovery law in Texas is the prosecution of and the eventual exoneration of, of Michael Morton in Texas. The lead prosecutor in Michael Morton's case was a man by the name of Ken Anderson, who later went on to become a, a judge in Williamson County, Texas. And as prosecutor in, in Michael Morton's case, he withheld a number of items of exculpatory value, including exculpatory statements made by Michael Morton's son, who was a, a witness to the killing of Michael Morton's wife, exculpatory evidence that was available from police reports and police investigations. When all of that came to life in light in combination with DNA testing that eventually exonerated Michael Morton, Ken Anderson was eventually actually uh, criminally prosecuted and served a short jail stint for having withheld that evidence. And I think that that event, the criminal prosecution, the sort of specter of a prosecutor being held accountable in that way for, uh, for discovery violations, for Brady violations, really changed the sort of political atmosphere in Texas around discovery and made it possible to enact discovery reform. And I think more broadly, it consistent with what Marty said, it is a case that reflects that there's a, a different understanding among prosecutors about the sort of vulnerability of their position vis-a-vis -vis the public when these prominent cases of misconduct arise. And and a, maybe a greater receptivity to having discovery standards in place that can prevent uh, both misconduct as well as sort of well-meaning prosecutors from sort of misstepping into these sorts of violations. You know, one of the concerns about Brady violations is that prosecutors haven't been held to account for them when they come to light. And Jennifer's got an example of one of those situations. But it is a pervasive problem, and what, one of the things that happened in New York is that the chief judge directed all trial court judges to issue orders to prosecutors in all cases to comply with Brady and Giglio obligations so that intentional violations could be subject to contempt findings. And just to make one last tie between this subject and the specific work of, of the task force for the fourth edition, there was 
extensive conversation within the task force about addressing remedies and sanctions for discovery violations and a real attention to making the discovery standards attentive to the need to respond to violations when they occur, both to respond in terms of remedying what harm has been done to a particular party's position in the case, and separately, in some instances, and in instances of actual sort of misconduct, of perhaps directly sanctioning individual actors in the system. And so that sort of greater development of thinking about what remedies and sanctions courts should avail themselves of in the face of discovery, missteps or misdeeds was a, a large part of the task force's work. Great. So let's take a step back and talk about the process that you used to establish this fourth edition of the Discovery Standards. What did your task force makeup look like? Who was involved? And when we talk about process, was it case review? What was your process like in coming to a place of establishing standards? So the the standards process in this case is like the standards process. In in all cases, a, a task force is appointed by the head of the criminal justice section, and it's comprised of prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges, academics, and and balanced numbers so that the perspective of all players in the system is brought to bear, and and the goal in doing that is, uh, again, to reach a consensus. Beyond that, there are liaisons from organizations of of prosecutors and, and defense attorneys. There's a concern to balance federal and state because the concerns in different parts of the system are sometimes very different, and also a concern about diversity. The standards get drafted, and Jennifer could talk about what's involved in that, which is Mm -hmm. huge, Uh, but the standards get drafted in the task force. They're mostly written consistent with the conversations that go on in the task force by Jennifer and and amended as we discuss them once they're finalized, and it took us 14 two-day meetings to finalize them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they then go to the Criminal Justice Standards Committee, which is co- composed of the same balance of, of players in the system, and they review it, and they can amend it, and to some extent did. And then it comes here to the council, and the council, in theory, has two readings, they're called, of the standards and make whatever changes they do. And from there, it goes to the House of Delegates, and after that, it gets final ABA approval. In terms of the actual process of drafting, of coming up with the fourth edition, you know, this, this was my first experience working on the criminal justice standards, my first experience as a, as a reporter to anything like this kind of project. And so from my standpoint, there was some trial and error involved in figuring out what did make sense in terms of how to proceed. But I would say, you know, the, the very first thing we actually did in our very first meeting, maybe it took two meetings to do this, but I think it was only one. You know, we, we started with the third edition as a baseline and just got full task force input on every single section of the third edition to sort of hear people out on where they thought change needed to be made. I brought some ideas and priorities to the table as well as a, sort of a, an initial push in the conversation. But at the end of that listening process, it was clear, you know, that folks had concerns about the remedies section, that folks wanted to think about 
you know, how discovery interacted with plea bargaining, that folks noticed that the third edition didn't really deal much with the timing of discovery, and that to the extent it did, it was sort of keyed to trial. And from that, you know, I sort of took some of those cues, started trying to redraft portions of the standard. And in that process, you know, there was a lot of back and forth. But I think that one thing that we tried to sort of keep at the center of our discussions was sort of teasing out for any particular standard or for the the standards as a whole, you know, what are the goals that we can agree on here, right? What's What can we all agree should be accomplished by these standards? What can we all agree should be off the table, right? And then to try to draft something that could capture the sense of what, you know, a consensus of the task force thought ultimately the standards should be accomplishing. As Judge Marcus indicated, the Discovery Task Force is in San Francisco presenting to council. So they are in sort of those final stages of completing the standards, but not there yet. So we'll look forward to a follow-up conversation with them once that is complete. So thank you to both of you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.